We're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, We'll read from verse 1 through to verse 18. Samuel chapter 1 verse 8 uh, chapter 1 verse 1 through to verse 18 now there was a certain man of Ramatham Sophim of the mountains of Ephraim and his name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham the son of Elihu the son of Tohu the son of Suf and Ephraimites and he had two wives the name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah Peninna had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant but will give your maidservant a male child then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth now Hannah spoke in her heart only her lips moved but her voice was not heard therefore Eli thought she was drunk So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do you not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now? (coughs) Then Eli answered, And said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. (coughs) Amen. So reads God's word. Well, last week we turned to the opening scene in chapter 1, focusing our attention upon the domestic circumstances of this man of Ramatham Sophim, whose name is Elkanah. Now tonight we come to the second scene, beginning there in verse 9, 
where we have a picture of silent prayer in the sanctuary. So verse 9, Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now, what's uh, significant about that? Well, she's removing herself from the realm of Elkanah's questions. Those questions in verse 8, where he says to Hannah, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? She's removing herself from those questions. And she's placing herself in the presence of the one who holds all the answers. Obviously, there is a physical dimension to this. She did arise after they had finished eating. But isn't it also for to say, friends, true to say that she has had to take herself out of the realm of those uh, recurring questions, which were, of course, merely furthering the sense of disappointment, hurt, and embitterment that basically was Hannah's life. It's a bit like the psalmist in Psalm 73, where he begins by saying, truly, God is good to Israel. And then he goes on to say, but as for me, I mean, God, I know you're good. I'm aware of that. God, I know you look after your people. I'm aware of that. But what about me? And then the psalmist, as you know, in Psalm 73, goes on to recount how it was easy for him to begin to envy uh, the wicked when he saw their prosperity and to be completely disorientated in his understanding of things until he tells us, you know, when I thought, uh, how do you understand all of this? You know, that the wicked were prospering, etc., etc. And it was all too painful for me to think about it until. And what did he do? I just want to make sure you are awake. <laughs> On, until he did what? John's awake. Until he went into the sanctuary of God. That's right. And... You see how Hannah's doing the same. She goes in to the sanctuary. And you will notice that the description of her in that passage that we read, particularly from verse 9, can be summarized in these phrases. She is in deep distress. Uh, There's uh, bitterness. There's tears. There's earnest prayer, obviously. Uh, There's the affliction that she's feeling of bitterness of soul. There's great anxiety and vexation over, you know, her rival Penina. And you can imagine that she's saying in her heart, Oh God, I do thank you for my husband. I do love him. But he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand me. And so to you, O Lord, I cry. And the chances are that Elkanah was probably in his bedroom praying something similar. You know, Lord, I love Hannah. But it's the men are from Mars, women are from Venus type of thing. I just don't understand her. I don't get it. And we pray to you, O God. We pray to you because there's nobody else we can cry to. 
You see, what we should be struck with, what we should be struck by at this point is this, that the response of Hannah is not vengeance. In spite of all that she's been suffering at the hands of her, of her rival, uh, she's not vengeful. There is no indication that she wants to form a plot in order to you know, eradicate her rival. Nor is there any sense of her becoming <coughs> resentful towards God, which you could argue would be an understandable reaction. Nor is she fatalistic. You know, um, she's not going around singing with Doris Day, wasn't it? Kesarar, Sarar. Uh, whatever will be, will be. You know, the you know, epitomizing the, the shrug, you know, which could be the most hopeless of all comments in our circumstances. Uh, there's none of that. What she's doing is she is bringing her tears, she's bringing her sighs, she's bringing her longings, which are all an expression of her sad, sorrowful heart. She's bringing them into the presence of God. You see how she's seeking to bring her life under God's jurisdiction, the God who is too wise to make mistakes and who is too kind to be cruel. Now, that's the story of Christian pilgrimage, isn't it? You know, you can't be involved in church life. You can't be involved in congregational life over any length of time without being aware of the fact that all around us, uh, certainly on a regular basis, Life after life after life is dealing with these very issues. I won't ask if anyone would like to come up and give personal testimony to this, but if I did, I'm sure a number of us, if not all of us, could certainly stand up and share that this is where we have been. These are the shoes that I've stood in. And we could all stand here and say, yeah, we've been there together. This is how we have cried out to God. That it's not that we, it's not that we prayed and the tears stopped. It's that we prayed and wept more. There was no simple solution to the problem. There was no immediate eradication of the problem. You know, Penina and her kids are still there. And many of us go through all of our days dealing with circumstances like that. Never an, an eradication of the problem. It's just the thorn of the, the flesh that God says, my grace will be sufficient for you. So it is remarkable, isn't it, what Hannah does. In verses 10 and 11, she's in bitterness of soul. And yet what does she do? She, she prays. She prays to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant. You know, I, look, I, I know you look on the affliction of your people. I know that. 
I know you looked on the affliction of Noah and his circumstances. I know that you looked upon the affliction of Abraham and his circumstances. I know you looked upon the affliction of Joseph and his circumstances. I know you looked upon the affliction of your people in, in Egypt. I know that you're a God who looks on the affliction of your people. And since you are a God who looks on the affliction of your people, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. My friends, she's not making a promise here in an attempt to induce God's favor. Okay, this is not a bit of sort of spiritual arm twisting. She knows better than that. All she is saying is this Lord, you are the majestic God. You're the God of the armies of Israel. You're the God, you're the Lord of hosts. You are sovereign. And I am your servant. This is my predicament. This is how it's making me feel. And I regard it with deep affliction. And therefore, I am asking you to do for me, little Hannah, do for me what you have done for your people in the past. And you see how God's love in the past, God's care of his people in the past, is what drives her and gives her the confidence to pray as audaciously as she does. And that will drive us tonight as we come before the throne of grace, remembering God's providences in the past. And Hannah could never have known that in answering her prayer, God was actually addressing the problem of Israel. God in answering her little prayer was doing something far bigger and far grander than Hannah ever imagined. You know, her prayer has fast, fast ramifications. Do you come here on Wednesday nights when we have our prayer meetings on Saturday morning and when there's a concert of prayer with the West Langs, do you, do you come to those meetings conscious that what you pray could have fast ramifications? Could have global ramifications? That's why I said last week, you know, when Hannah asked the question, which she probably inevitably did every day when she asked the question, why is this happening to me? The answer to the question is not in the this, nor is it in the me. For the ways of God are fast beyond our ability to comprehend. And in many cases in our journey of life, it will only be in glory that we will make sense of all the tangled threads and the dark periods and the black bits 
you know, and everything we didn't understand, we scratched our heads at. You know, we often use the illustration, don't we, about the tapestry. You know, you look at it in the back and all the dangled threads and the, you know, the, the thing looks a bit of a mess. And then you turn it around and it's a beautiful picture. And I guess this side of eternity, that's how it seems, doesn't it? You know, all tangled threads, a bit of a mess. Nothing beautiful about it. But then when we get the glory and look at it, it'll be, wow, that's what God was doing. You know, that's why that came thundering into my life and crashing into my life and I couldn't make any sense of it. Look what happened from that side of eternity. And so Hannah says, Answer my prayer, and I will give you this boy, and no razor shall touch his head all the days of his life. Now the reference there obviously is to the Nazarite fire. Nazarite fire would have had a time frame to it. That's why you read in the Acts of the Apostles, you know, when Paul had his hair cut according to the Nazarite fire. It lasted for a while. But uh, Hannah says here, um, this boy will be yours forever. Now, all the words are in her mouth, but you notice we haven't heard a peep from, from Hannah. Because in verses 12 and 13, it says, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. In other words, her prayers had been heartfelt, obviously. They were observable prayers, but they were inaudible prayers. Well, what does the pastor have to say? Because he's been sitting in the chair watching this from the sidelines. And he's making his own assessment. And as he watches from the wings, Eli, who is the father of, uh, as you know, uh, familiar with the story, Eli is the father of two worthless sons. He has concluded that this is a worthless woman. And with an embarrassing uh, absence of spiritual insight, he concludes, you know, she's inebriated. She's had a little bit too much to drink. Just in the same way, remember the crowd on the day of Pentecost uh, thought that the disciples had a bit too much to drink. And uh, Peter saying, well, it's nine in the morning. You know what will happen? Be night on a, on a pub crawl. And the folks in, you know, uh, the, the New Testament, yeah, I guess some of them were were non-believers and, uh, you know, you could forgive their uh, mistake. But, but Eli, Eli, you know, it happens, doesn't it? Pastors are only too human and can let you down. And you go and pour your soul out, he just doesn't get it. God gives shepherds to the flock, but we always need to remember our hope is in God alone. The best of men are only men at the end of the day, with all their faults and with all their feelings. And Eli here is representative of the religious establishment, and he's missing the point phenomenally well. 
So she has to explain to him, I'm not a worthless woman. She's been speaking out of the anxiety and the grief of her heart and the penny drops in Eli Twigs. And he says in verse 17, you go in peace and the God of Israel will grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she says in verse 18, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And then we read, the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, in this final little section, what can we say? Well, I think you could have heard, you could have heard it in the comments of others, if you can imagine it. Uh, could have been heard in the comments of Elkanah. Could have been heard in the comments of her friends. Could have been heard in the comments of her neighbours. Hannah, you're looking more like yourself. Isn't that what people say after you've been on well? You know, I saw you a few weeks ago and you weren't looking yourself. And you're looking more like yourself now. <laughs> Strange thing to say, isn't it? How can you be like anybody else like? And... Uh, but the people say, you know, you're looking more like yourself. We you know what they mean. Um, you were under the weather. You were weeping. You were sick. That's what people probably said to Hannah. You know, you know, for such a long time, Hannah, you weren't yourself. But look at this. She brought her grief to the Lord. I get this. She brought her grief to the Lord. And before he answered, either way. Either you can have the child you've asked for or not. Okay? She brought her grief to the Lord. And before her prayer is answered either way, her appetite has returned and her countenance has changed. And the way in which this is written points to the fact that the point of reference, if you like, for the resolution of this dilemma for Hannah was not in the pregnancy, was not in that side of the answer of her prayer, nor in the subsequent arrival of her child, but in the fact that she had, if you like, um, her own First Peter 5, 6-7 encounter, in that she cast all her care upon the Lord, and she left it there. It was there in the quiet place. It was there in the sanctuary. It was there as she prayed from her heart that she was settled in the conviction that I have poured this out to God. He has heard it. I'm leaving it there. And I'm going to get on with life. O Lord of hosts, I don't know what you're doing. don't know why you're doing it. But I take the absence or the presence of a child as from your hand. And you can apply that right across the board in any given circumstance. You see, Hannah had confidence that she was talking to God. And she says, I don't know what you're doing or why. 
But I'll leave it there. Some of you have heard um, before she went to glory. Certainly if you haven't, if you've never heard her personally, I think some of you, a number of you have read her book. You know, she went to glory in 2016, Dr. Helen Rosevere. Some of you heard, heard her, yeah. Um, you're familiar with the, the, the story. She studied medicine at Cambridge. And after completing her studies, she went to Belgian Congo to serve as a medical missionary. In the uprising in the Congo in the 1960s, many of her friends were murdered. She was physically tortured, as you know, brutalized, raped. Uh, went back to England, a shadow of her former self, and um, once repaired physically and emotionally, she actually returned to uh, the Belgian Congo, back, back to the same people. Uh, the question is, and she addressed this question, and she addresses this question in, in her books, the, the questions. The questions are, how did you resolve this attack, the rape, the brutalization, the imprisonment, the killings in your own mind? How do you deal with the dilemma, the obvious dilemma of, here I am, Lord. I finished my studies and I give myself over to you. I give my medical degree over to you. I give the absence of marriage over to you. Yeah, I give my life over to you. And then this is what you get. Brutalized, raped, imprisoned. What's her response to those questions? She said she felt that God had said to her, Helen, can you thank me for testing you with this, even if I never tell you why? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Can you thank me for the brutalization, the rape, the imprisonment, seeing friends killed? Can you thank me for this testing, even even if I never tell you why. And she said, when I answered, when I answered yes, it was only then that peace began to flood my soul. Hannah answered yes. And the challenging dilemmas of each of our lives, surely the only stabilizing answer for any of us is also to say yes. And whatever you're doing, Lord, I'll trust you for it. Even though you will maybe never ever give me an explanation for what I'm going through. And so you see how it is difficult, isn't it, to sort of pull in a New Testament um, passage. It is difficult to apply rejoice in the Lord always. You know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. <laughs> difficult to apply that. And Paul in uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us how it can be applied. Okay, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And he just doesn't say, right, get on with it. He says, no, you got to know how to apply this. 
And this is what he says. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. Which passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind through Jesus Christ. Yes, beloved, there are times when we are caught off guard by life. And sometimes we get dealt a raw deal. Sometimes a curveball just comes out of the blue. And we're suddenly faced with problems that can wipe out our joy in an instant. Our hearts are disquieted. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Well, because of this, this, and this. We're grappling with unsettling problems that come our way, cause us to worry. What does Paul say? Look, get to the throne of grace. You know, don't run from the throne of grace. Run to the throne of grace. The psalmist says in Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name, for the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting. You see, beloved, God's gates are always, always open to us. He's always waiting for us whenever we're upset and in need of a friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. We still feel uh, the pain, we still feel uh, you know, the, the hurtful emotions. We don't just hand them over to God and expect them to disappear, do we? But we can experience God's peace through supplicating the throne of grace. We can experience God's peace through prayer. Prayer, as you know, is a useful tool to help us work through our problems. And God will give us his peace. Reminding us that he is there with us. He is there for us. And certainly for that we can be thankful. Friends, we certainly learn through Hannah's experience. A life bathed in prayer is the best antidote to the anxiety, the distresses, the worries. And then certainly learn from Hannah to be persistent in prayer. And God calls for us to persistently pray for strength and steadfastness. You know, when things are not going to plan or the outcome is not what we would have liked it to have been, real easy to stop praying. Or even worse, to take it a further step, you know, to believe that God has abandoned, abandoned us. You know, you can get into that mindset as the wicked one attacks. So praying to God persistently deepens our relationship with God and throws us into the arms of our sovereign creator God, loving heavenly father. 